Thanks, Darren. I know you already heard Grizzly Keith on the video tell you that he's out of town in Texas, but I'm going to he made a joke, Keith made a joke this week that I just feel like you should be in on because you've been in on it every week for a while, and so I'm going to tell you the story real quick. Usually Keith and I get together uh, once a week just to chat over lunch, and then the past couple of weeks, you know, I told you last week that we're working on putting together a teaching team that we're meeting, uh, six of us are meeting and texting through First Thessalonians, and sometime after the new year, you're going to hear each of those guys one week teach a section of First Thessalonians, and so... Keith, being one of our elders, and Adam Alm, being another of our elders, is in that group because uh, the Bible is real clear that our elders uh, are supposed to be able to teach. It's one of the qualifications for being an elder. And so they'll be teaching one of those weeks. And then Eric Moreno, our student pastor, is in there because our pastors are teachers. And then there's two other guys just in the church that aren't on staff, aren't elders, because I wanted to make sure that we're being real clear that this isn't something just for the paid professionals to do, that we really believe that God gives us his spirit and his word for all of us to be making disciples. Um, and so anyway, we had been meeting, we'd done our first week, and we were going to meet this past Thursday to work through another section of First Thessalonians, but a couple of guys had stuff come up, we're going to be out of town for Thanksgiving, just different things going on. And so when we canceled that, Keith just texted me that he wasn't even going to come to lunch this week. And his text was, I'm going to go get a haircut instead so that I won't be uh, scraggy, Keith. Scraggly. Scraggly? Scraggy? Scruffy? Scraggly? Scraggly? Scraggly Keith for Thanksgiving. So I guess we got Grizzly Keith, but not Scraggly Keith. I don't know how long the Keith updates are going to keep happening, but if he keeps making them, I guess they'll just keep happening. Um, but Darren, thanks for leading with Keith being out of town. Really appreciate it. We're in Acts 15 today. And I'm going to give you a heads up up front. I think I may like flip the script today. I know that usually you all talk, like most of the time it's open for you all to say stuff, and then I talk some at the end. I think I may say a lot more today. So just like fair warning, like if you need to go get another donut or some more coffee or something, um, I just, I've got a lot more notes today than I usually do when we get up here. So we're going to read this. We're going to be asking, what's this teach about God? And we'll take a few minutes. I'd love, I still want to hear the things that God says to you directly out of his word when we first just read the word publicly together. And so I want you to share for a few minutes. And then I don't want to run forever over into lunch, so I'll probably cut that off a little bit sooner than we usually do. I'm going to share some thoughts that I feel like I've seen this week. And then if uh, we get done in time with that, then I'll open it back up and, and we'll have some more time to share maybe what God's saying to your heart, saying to us today based on that. So that's where we're headed right now. If you'll pray with me and just ask God that he would be teaching during this time, that we would really see the truth of what he's saying about himself in Acts chapter 15 today. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the privilege of coming together, for the grace and the gift that you give us as your people, that we can gather in your name and we can open up your word in the Bible and that you promise to give your spirit as the one who will teach us and remind us of all truth and lead us into all truth. And so thank you, Father, that you haven't left us in the dark, that you haven't left us guessing, that you have come to us and made yourself known and that you speak and that you teach and that you promise to do the work that we need you to do in our hearts by your spirit, to give us your spirit and to give us new hearts and soft hearts that respond to you. And Father, I ask right now in the name of Jesus that that is exactly what you will do during this time as you build your church and you make us more like your son, Jesus. So please, Father, right now, 
Teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 15. Uh, we're going to go through verse 35 today, so not quite the whole chapter, um, but going through verse 35. And this is after Paul and Barnabas have been on their first missionary journey to the Gentiles. Like the first time that the church has intentionally sent missionaries outside of Israel and, and not just to the Jews, but saying, hey, we're going to reach the whole world, the nations, all the non-Jews, that's who the Gentiles are, with the gospel to tell them about Jesus and tell them that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is for them as well, that they can be made right with God, that they can be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas have returned from that first missionary journey, and this is what happens. This is the response of some of the people uh, in Jerusalem. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, 
both the elders and the, the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right. What's that teach us about God? This is your section right here. I've warned you up front, so if something jumps out to you, share it with us right now. What's that? God can pour out his spirit on everyone and slash anyone. And what we're saying there is not limited by race, culture, background. That it's for all people, all nations. God sent Jesus for all peoples, not just the Jews, not just any other certain group of people, or, but anyone who would believe in Jesus. Anyone who would call on his name, that forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God is offered to anyone through faith in Jesus. What else? <laughs> it is Jesus, period. Not Jesus. Oops. And. and the reason I laughed, this column right here, when I told you I had a lot of notes, this column is titled Jesus. This column is titled Jesus and. <laughs> it's what I thought was the main thing that we need to talk about today. So we'll come back to that in just a minute. I'm going to give you your fair share of time here, though. It's not been 10 minutes yet, right? What else? couple of things that stand out to you. If there's anything you just feel burdened to say right now, say it. Everybody's like, you've said you're going to say a lot, so I'm not talking until you do. That's the reason I'll never tell you that up front. What was that? The church has been full of disagreement and debate from the beginning. 
there has been disagreement and debate in the church from the beginning and if you give me the liberty of expanding on this like notice what it's about like this this chapter is huge from the about the true gospel I mean, that, that's what's going on in this chapter is what is the gospel, really? What is this good news that God has declared to us in Jesus? Is it Jesus alone, period? That Jesus has done it all. Jesus gives it to you as a gift of grace. You could never earn it. You could never deserve it. And Jesus gives you everything you need. That Jesus is sufficient. That that there's nothing you could ever add to Jesus because it's all found in Jesus. That his righteousness is perfect. His goodness is perfect. His grace is perfect. And what he gives you is enough for you to be right with God forever because he's right with God forever. And when you're united to him in faith, you're right with God in the same way he is. Is that the gospel? Or is it Jesus plus what you do? Jesus and you've got to add some stuff. Bring your works of the law. Bring your obedience. Bring your external stuff. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you've also got to do this. And if you don't do this, Jesus isn't enough for you. Like, Do you hear what's going on in this chapter? And in this chapter, it takes the version of these Jews who have come to believe in Jesus, but that, you know, their whole lives they've been taught that the Jewish law is how they're right with God, and specifically that circumcision is a mark that, that all the Jewish males had to be circumcised when they were eight days old, and it was a mark for we're part of the people of God. And, and it started out that it was a mark saying you're the people of God. Right? Abraham was already God's person before God gave the order of circumcision in, in Genesis 17. In Genesis 12, God had already called Abraham and he already blessed him and promised what he was going to do through him. And so he was the people of God and he had the external mark then to show what was already true about him. But somewhere along the way, they flipped those things and they said the external mark's what makes us the people of God. Do you see the difference? Not that we're doing this or getting this because we're the people of God, but we're going to do this or get this so that we'll be the people of God. If we do this, it makes us the people of God, not we're doing this because God has claimed us as his people. And while that's the issue for them, that's not the issue for us generally today in the church because we're not struggling with the Jewish heritage and the Jewish background and the Jewish law in that same sense. But listen, we're struggling with all of our own background and heritage and tradition and laws and religious traditions and all the things that once upon a time it was great to say because God has claimed us and he has made us his people, and he's made us his church because we're his people, this, this, and this. This is what it looks like in our life. This is what we do. This is the way we behave. This is the way we live. These are some of the religious things we do because we're his people. And somewhere along the way, it's so easy for us to flip that and start saying, no, we do this stuff so that we'll be his people. I do this to make myself more acceptable to him, to make him approve of me more, to please him more, to make him love me more. I earn the fact that I'm God's people by doing this. And we take all the things that ought to grow out of the fact that God's already done it all and given it all in Jesus. And it all grows out of that. And we flip it around. We say, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and offer it to God as what I do for him. Do you see the difference here? And think about how crucial this is this early in the church that It's either going to be the true gospel of Jesus and Jesus alone, that it is God's grace alone 
by faith alone, in Jesus alone, that makes you right with God. And therefore, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. And it can be offered to anyone and everyone because it's all based on Jesus. Like, this is why. This is the exact reason they could bust out of Jerusalem and bust out of the Jews and be offered to everyone because it's Jesus. You believe in Jesus and Jesus alone is enough for you. Like, is that going to be the message of the church? Or is it going to be, here's what you've got to do. Here's what you've got to do to make yourself right with God. And never mind the fact that it'll never be enough, that you'll never be good enough. What that does, if it's what you've got to do, that reduces Christianity to what every other religion in the world already says. Go take your pick of any man-made religion you want, and what they all say is, here's what you need to do to get to God. Christianity is the only one that starts with God. The only God-centered religion that comes to you and says, no, here's what God has done to get to you. Here's what God offers you, not what God asks you to offer Him. Here's what God gives to you, not what God asks you to give to Him. And the reason is because what you give will never be good enough. But what He gives is perfect and complete and always good enough. This is about God's promises to you and God's grace to you, not your work for him. It's the only religion in the world that says that because it's the only religion that comes from God, right? Of course, a religion that comes from God is going to say, hey, this starts with God and this is about God and this is about what God does for you. And of course, religions that start with man are going to say, this is about you and what you do and how you get to God. And so the question right now is, will Christianity stand out and be separated as the one true religion that has come from God, or will the church lose the gospel and lose the heart of Christianity and just fall back into being any other religion in the world that you can find anywhere else? That's what's at stake in Acts 15. And so, yeah, there's disagreement and debate in the church because everything's on the line right here. Everything matters right here. And so one of my notes that I wrote down was this. The gospel is worth fighting for. Here these men come from Judea, and they're saying, you've got to add something to Jesus. I mean, think about what this sentence says. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What that says is, Jesus cannot save you. Jesus is not enough for you. If you trust Jesus but you don't do this, you won't be saved. Right? That's what they're saying. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I like to think that this is Luke's Acts version of saying, Paul and Barnabas went off on them. Right? Let me tell you what they don't do right here. They don't say, well, listen, hey, we got we to gotta be careful how we handle this because if we push too hard or, or if, if we're too insistent on the gospel, that may disrupt the unity of the church. We've got to make sure that we protect the unity of the church so we can't disagree with them too much. Now, what they say is the unity of the church means nothing if we're not united around the gospel. That's what they say. The gospel is the priority, not the unity of the church, because the gospel is the only thing that can actually unite us. 
Like if we don't believe the same thing about Jesus, I don't care how much you smile at each other and shake each other's hands. You're not united around the gospel and you're not a church. That's what they're saying. This is worth fighting for. And they're like, so we'll fight you to your face. No small dissension and debate. We will argue as much as we have to argue for the sake of the gospel. And then if that's not enough, we'll haul you back to Jerusalem and say, let's get everybody together and let's do this publicly. What is the gospel? What is it really? The gospel is worth fighting. And when I say that word gospel, it literally means good news. But just make sure. What is the good news they're talking about? Good news that God, he's the one who does it, saves us by his grace alone. That it's his grace, a gift. It's not wages that we earn. We don't work and get paid for what we did. He gives a gift when we didn't deserve it. By his grace alone, through faith alone, grace alone, through faith alone, that the way you receive that grace is by trusting. He's offering it and you just say, yeah, I'll take that. I believe you. I believe you're giving that. You don't do something to get it. You just receive it. By faith alone, in Jesus alone. That what I'm trusting is what Jesus has done. His life, his death, his resurrection, that he covers it all. He is sufficient. He is all that I need to be made right with God. That his life was a perfect life. That he lived the life we all should have lived and haven't. He really did it. And so his perfect life makes him perfectly acceptable to God. And then his death was a sacrificial death in your place as a substitute for you, that he took your sin on himself when he did not deserve to die, he died in your place. The death you deserved to die. Somebody had to die that death. You should have. He shouldn't have. And so when he dies it, it pays a price that he didn't know for your sake. It's somebody coming to you and saying, yeah, I know you owe a million dollars and I know you don't have it, but I do. I'll pay it. Once he pays it, it's paid. Right? Justice is satisfied by the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus and then by the power of his resurrection. That because he didn't deserve to die, God in all of his justice and love for his son wouldn't leave him dead. And he lifted him up out of death and out of the grave and he declared forever, this is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. This is who he is. Believe in him by the power of his resurrection. He will bring you to life spiritually with him. He will make you right with God in his righteousness, in his perfection, in his perfect life. And he's taken away your sins by his death. He's done it all. You need righteousness, he gives it to you. You need forgiveness, you need cleansing, you need your sins taken away, he took it away. You need your price paid, he paid it. You need power to make you right with God, to change your heart, that you would live in every way. He gives it in his resurrection, Jesus alone. That's, the, that's what we mean when we say the gospel is worth fighting for. That truth, that message, the central message in the history of the world, the thing that God did that defines everything else. There's no wiggle room on this. There's no room to be passive or apathetic about this. There's no room to be two degrees off on this. Right? Because two degrees off right here, 50 years from now, looks like this, and it doesn't look like Jesus at all. That's why it's grace alone, and don't you dare add anything to it. 
and faith alone, and don't you dare add anything to it, and Jesus alone, and don't you dare add anything to it, because if you do, you're not trusting Jesus. That's what's at stake. And these guys that we've seen over and over and over who are following Jesus, trusting Jesus, being used by Jesus, they say that's worth fighting for. These guys who are filled with the Spirit, the gospel is worth fighting for. Now, I'll also say this. Most things in the church aren't worth fighting for. (laughs) Most of the stuff that we get worked up about and we fight about is not worth fighting for. (laughs) And then the one thing we ought to get worked up about and we ought to fight about, we're like, "Eh, we may offend people if we say that. If we insist on this, they think this. We won't have peace. We We won't be united. And Paul said, I never can be united with you unless you believe this gospel. Real unity is found in Jesus alone. Because by faith alone, I'm united to Jesus. And when I'm united to Jesus, I have peace with God. I'm reconciled to God, united to God. And if you're united to Jesus in the same way by the same gospel, here you're united to Jesus and I'm united to Jesus. And what happens? We're united to each other. We're joined together in Jesus. We're now part of his body, the same body, believing the same thing, connected to the same God in the same way, by the same gospel. This is the only way that God builds his church. The only way that the body of Christ is built and made and comes to life is through the gospel of Jesus. And so that's what's at stake in Acts 15. And yeah, There are disagreements and debate in the early church because they're saying some truths, some truths you can't compromise. You can't sacrifice. You can't even be two degrees off. It has to be this and only this because God's done everything he's done in the entire history of the world to tell us this about Jesus, to tell us this is how we're made right with him, that this is who he is. All right, one more. That was still your all's time. What's that? Yeah, we do have in this chapter men who risk their lives for Jesus. Let's do it this way. Jesus is worth risking your life for. And when you, this becomes true for you when you know this. Jesus is your life. Paul and Barnabas, they'd had their hearts changed by Jesus. They'd had their lives saved by Jesus. They'd had their lives changed by Jesus. The the true life that lived in them now was Jesus living in them by his spirit. He is their life. And so, of course, they'll risk this life for him. When you know that Jesus is your life, you know that Jesus is worth risking your life for. That's a good one. I'm glad we took time for that one. All right, let's jump into this chart here. Because really, like, who the church is going to be, whether it is going to be the church of Jesus Christ or the church of man is at stake right here, whether it's going to be the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus, or a gospel of man that's no gospel at all, not good news at all. That's what's at stake right here. Whether anyone can know the real and only way to be made right with God or whether they're going to believe something else that everybody else in all their lostness already believes, that's what's at stake in Acts 15. And so on one side of this chart, I just, I've got Jesus 
Like if it really is Jesus and Jesus, like you just need to say Jesus. You can say just Jesus, only Jesus, Jesus alone, however you want to put it in your notes. But I'm saying like Jesus and nothing else. Or, and I'm going to go ahead and do this for a while. We'll just have to make it longer later. Or is it Jesus and? You know, and in this case, it was Jesus and the Jewish law, Jesus and the law of Moses, Jesus and circumcision, but Jesus and your good works, Jesus and your religious traditions, Jesus and your baptism, Jesus and whatever, whatever you want to attach to Jesus. And so as we, as we walk through this here, I just kept seeing the difference between these two views. So starting right here in verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. And so when Peter's talking right here about what, like when God first used him to reach the Gentiles, if you remember that story, God gives an angel to Cornelius, a vision to Peter, says to Cornelius, go get Peter, bring him to your house. Tells Peter, go to his house. When Peter's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for the very first time, they believe and the Holy Spirit comes on them right then. They haven't done anything to make themselves right with God. They haven't given anything to God. Right? All they have done is Peter walked into the house and told them the truth about Jesus. They hear it and believe, and God accepts them right then. And so, like starting in verse 8 here, God, this is what it, the actual gospel of Jesus alone, God gives his spirit to you. So God is the one who gives to you. Now the contrast to that, what the Pharisees we're coming and telling people, all the, the Judaizers, the ones that are saying you've got to obey the Jewish law, they're saying, no, 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 you have to give your works to God. Like, Peter says, here's the way you're made right with God. God gives his spirit to you. And the people that believe in Jesus and, Jesus and whatever, say, no, no, here's how you're made right with God. You give your works to God. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but you've got to give your works to God too because Jesus won't be enough by himself. You've got to do this to be saved. Also in verse 8 here, this God bore witness to them. Like the witness that God is bearing there is he's declaring, he's showing the Jews, hey, I accept the Gentiles. Here's my testimony about the Gentiles. They are acceptable by faith in me. And so God, in the gospel of Jesus alone, God testifies that he accepts you. And I mean, don't lose, like God accepts you, welcomes you to him, approves of you. God accepts you because of what Jesus has done. Peter shows up and he preaches a message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that this is the way that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And they hear that message and God says, I accept them. And he gives the Spirit as that testimony to bear witness to the Jews. I'm really accepting them. And all they've done is hear the message of Jesus and believe it. Like nothing else. It's what Jesus has done that makes them right with God, not what they've done. Over here, the Jesus and tells you, if you do good things, you Oh, 
You got the wrong one. If you do good things, sorry, change that. I got an eraser. If you do good things, God will accept you more. So here, God testifies he accepts you because of what Jesus has done. Over here, if you do good things, God will accept you more. The reason I got off a little bit there, and this is going on to verse 9 now. God cleanses you. That's Jesus alone. He made no distinction between us having cleansed their hearts by faith. He cleansed their hearts. But in the Jesus and version, if you do good things, you will make yourself clean or cleaner. You know, the Pharisees, this is what's so sneaky. They aren't actually saying, hey, choose between Jesus or this. They're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is a good thing. It's just not enough. It's Jesus and this. So, so Jesus can make you partially acceptable to God, but you've got to do the rest. Jesus can partially clean you, but you've got to do the rest. The things that you do make you more acceptable to God. The things that you do make you cleaner. And so Peter's saying, no, God alone. God alone makes you acceptable. God alone cleans you. And they're like, no, the good things you do add to it, makes you more acceptable, makes you cleaner. Then also in 9, he made no distinction between us and then having cleansed their hearts by faith. Do you see that you know, earlier when it's saying grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone? Here's the faith alone right here in verse 9. How does God do this? God cleanses you by faith. And so this one up here, the emphasis on God does it. God's the one that cleanses you. Now, how? God cleanses you by faith, not by your works, not by your effort, by believing, by trusting. The, the counter to that in the Jesus and column, you make yourself cleaner by good works. And this is the contrast here. Will it be by faith or will it be by works? Romans 4, if you want to go read on it later, Paul writes an entire chapter to contrast faith from works, what you get from God if you come to God with your works or what you get to get from God when you come to God in faith. And Peter's saying the true gospel is that God alone can clean your heart, can purify your heart, and it's by faith alone. And the Pharisees are coming out, it's faith plus, faith and. You've got to add what you do. You do this for yourself, not God doing this for you. Also in verse 9, just one other thing. We've already said this this morning. He made no distinction between us and them. Do you see this right here? This is us and them as Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinctions. In the true gospel, there's no distinctions between anyone who believes. The, the true gospel tears down human barriers. This is like because it's not what you do. It's not who you are. That's not what's going to make you right with God. That's not what's going to make you acceptable to God. It's what Jesus has done. It's who Jesus is. And anyone who believes in Jesus receives the work of Jesus on their behalf. And so it, there are no distinctions between you you either are in Jesus and you believe in Jesus or you're not in Jesus and you don't. And everyone who's in Jesus, everyone who's in Jesus is in the same category together. It doesn't matter your race, your culture, your class, your background, what you've done. None of it matters. Do you believe in Jesus or not? 
And then everybody who's not in Jesus, it doesn't matter how good you are, how good you look, or how much you come to church, or what your religious traditions are, if you're not in Jesus, you're not right with God. There's no distinctions there either. And so in the true gospel, there's no distinctions between anyone who believes in this Jesus and. Think about what happens as soon as it's, well, yeah, Jesus, but you've also got to do this. You better try real hard. You better be real good. You better work real hard. There's all kinds of distinctions based on what we do. Oh, you come on Sunday mornings? Well, I come on Wednesday nights. I'm more committed than you are. You give this, we give this. You read your Bible 15 minutes a day, I read my Bible 30 minutes a day. It's immediate. Sure, like if you read your Bible more than me, surely you're more acceptable to God than me, right? If you pray more than me, God must love you more than me. If you give more than me, God must approve of you more than me. Sure, if it depends on your works. If that's the purpose of your works. If you're doing it so that you can be acceptable to God, that's the way it would work. There'd be all kinds of distinctions. And we build up this entire class system within the church where it's like we've got our really committed people and our not-so-committed people and our not-at-all-committed people. And how do we move all these people over to being really committed people so that everybody's doing more and giving more and more involved? How do we pressure and guilt everybody into doing this? Because then it all works better. Or are we saying Jesus is enough for you? Don't do anything so that you'll be right with God. Do everything because you're already right with God. (laughs) You're not doing anything to become the people of God. You're doing these things because you are the people of God. Jesus has done it all for you and he's given it all to you. And there's no distinctions. It's all of grace. And any good thing you do, that's him working in you. (laughs) He did that. That's his grace. That's his spirit. You know who gets credit for that? He does. So there's still no distinctions. Praise God for the good things he produces in you. And praise God for the good things he produces in other people. And so this Jesus and builds human barriers. It divides us. It classifies us. It tears us apart. It separates us out. It leads to comparison and competition and pride. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Like, why in the world? After God shows up, and this is the gospel that he speaks. He says, I will accept anyone by faith in Jesus. If they believe the truth of what Jesus has done, I accept them and I give my spirit to them and I cleanse their hearts by faith. That's the message that God declared in the gospel from Peter's mouth to the Gentiles. And they said, why now would you come back and put God to the test? Not the Gentiles. You're not testing the Gentiles by saying, how obedient are you? Will you do this or not? How committed are you? This Jesus and, in verse 10 right here, it tests God. You're saying, God... I've found that your message isn't sufficient. I put your message to the test and you didn't say enough. This whole Jesus alone thing, how in the world are we going to get people to do what we want them to do? How are we going to make them look the way we want them to look? How are we going to get them to obey our rules and our laws? How in the world are we going to build up something the way we want it to be when we can't hold over their head, do this or God won't love you? And God's saying, I never asked you to build anything like that. I never asked you to motivate anybody in that way. The real gospel doesn't test God. 
The real gospel trusts God. What he's done is enough. What he says is enough. His spirit is enough. If something needs to be done, let's ask him to do it. Pray more instead of pressuring more. Give more grace instead of giving more guilt. Believe that praying to God will be more effective for spiritual purpose than pressuring people to do 100,000 things. Believe that the grace of God will change people's hearts and when hearts are really changed, lives change and behavior change. Believe that the grace of God is more powerful than guilt. Even if it looks messier, even if it doesn't produce all the nice shiny results that we want, that praying and trusting God and trusting the grace of God will always be more powerful spiritually than pressure and guilt and manipulation and, and plugging people in wherever to build our thing. We don't want to build our thing. We want God to build his thing. Verse 11, this true gospel of Jesus, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is all of us, Jews and Gentiles. That covers everybody. And there's your, you know, we saw faith alone just a minute ago. Here's grace alone. Like we're not just making up that definition of the gospel because it sounds good. It's God saves us by grace alone. This is how it'll happen for everybody. Through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And so verse 11 here, through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus has done it. And will give it to you. That's what grace, grace means, gift. That what he has done, he will give to you. Look right back up here, right before he said that in verse 10. Look, this is the worst thing of all about the Jesus and stuff. The Jesus and your religious, Jesus and your opinions, Jesus and your rules, whatever they are, Jesus and your good behavior. This is the worst thing of all. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's saying we've had this stuff for 1,500 years from Moses until now, and none of us can bear it. We've never been able to do it. We've never been able to live up to who God is and what God's standards are. It's been too heavy for us. It's been too hard for us, and it has crushed us. And so... Jesus and, if you don't hear a single other thing all day today, you can't do it and you never will. You're setting yourself up for failure. All that Jesus and can actually do is show you what you can't do apart from Jesus. And maybe you need to see that. But that is not the end game. It has to shatter you of thinking that you can add anything to Jesus and then bring you back to Jesus alone and you say, I can't do it, but Jesus has done it. I never will, but Jesus will give it to me. Then when James starts talking down here, he reemphasizes what Peter's already said. And he says, look what, look what God did when, when Simeon there, Simon Peter, it's still Peter, Simeon related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Notice that in the actual gospel, God's doing something for himself, for his name's sake. This is why you, if you get this wrong, you miss everything God's doing. Because what God's doing in the gospel is making a name for himself. If you come in your religion and say, here's what I've done for God, who's making a name for who then? 
God does something for you, accepts you, makes you his people for his name's sake. If you come and say, here God, I've worked real hard for you, you're doing something for your own name and you're missing the purpose of all reality. You exist for the glory of God, for the sake of the name of God. And so in verse 14 here, the the Jesus gospel, the real gospel, God makes you his. He takes you, he says, you're mine. I claim you by the blood of Jesus. God makes you his for his name. But in this Jesus and gospel, you work real hard to justify your name. And so one of these is about God and one of these is about you. One of these is what God does for the sake of his name, and it's great for you because he accepts you. And one of them is about what you do for the sake of your name, and it's terrible for you, and it's terrible for the glory of God. Almost done with this list, all right? So we get on down here now. After all that, when they've been so clear, and I want you to see this, it's so clear that it's Jesus alone, according to all the apostles, Paul and Barnabas and, and Peter and James, But we get down here, and I don't know if it seems weird to you when James is talking. He says, so here's what I think we should do. We shouldn't trouble them with anything except this. Tell them these four things. Abstain from uh, things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, what's been strangled, and from blood. And so you're thinking, well, why? Why do you you add these four things? Uh, If it's Jesus alone, why anything? And this is so good, so make sure you see this. Four... From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And the deal is, these things polluted from idols, sexual immorality, what's been strangled, what's from blood, all that was involved in all the false religions and the pagan religions and the idol worship that was going on in every city all over the Roman Empire. Like These were marks of worshiping a false god, engaging in worship to someone other than Jesus. And the Jews, who are scattered all over the empire now and are having Moses read in every synagogue on every Sabbath, they know like those things are so unacceptable to them, so far removed from anything they can tolerate that they won't be around people like that. And what's going on right here is now, okay, Gentiles, God has blown up the Jewish religion to come and reach you. Now make sure you live in a way that you can reach the Jews with the gospel. If you engage in this behavior, you'll never be able to connect with these Jews and the gospel won't reach them. This is not about doing something so that the Gentiles can be saved by their good behavior. This is about doing something so they can save the Jews by sharing the gospel with them. And so what they're saying is, you know this, you've heard, it's been read in every synagogue all over the Roman Empire, Sabbath after Sabbath, week after week, year after year. So you know these things about the Jews, and it's not because you have to do it to make you right with God. This is the best part right here. So in verses 19 through 31, like when they write the letter, they send it to them, all that stuff. Now, in Jesus alone, when it is Jesus and Jesus alone, you're free. You're free, but here's what that freedom looks like. You're free to act out of love. Sure, I can do anything I want, but because of love, I won't. I can eat food sacrificed to idols. I know those idols aren't real. I don't believe in those idols. But if I want to reach the Jews with the gospel, if I want them to know about Jesus, I've got to be able to have a relationship with them. And if I do this, I won't be able to reach them. So I won't do this. Not to make me right with God, because I want them to be right with God. I want them to hear the gospel. So you're free to act out of love, as opposed to, if you think about the the false Jesus and gospel we've been talking about, if you really think about what's going on there, you're always acting out of selfishness. 
and self-interest. Because what is the Jesus and message concerned with? How do I make myself right with God? How do I make myself better? How do I justify myself? What can I do better to look to, what can I do to look better in the eyes of other people? It's always about me, me working for me, me making me look better, me advancing me, me achieving for my sake. It's the most selfish message in the whole world. And over here, the gospel says, you don't have to do anything. So stop thinking about yourself. Stop worrying about yourself. Jesus did it all for you so you don't have to think about you anymore. And now you're free to love other people. And you're free to love people who are different from you. You're free to love people who have different traditions than you. You're free to enter into their traditions. You're free to burden yourself in ways that Jesus would never burden you for their sake because you love them and you want them to know Jesus. The gospel of Jesus actually promotes the gospel of Jesus. You want to know how to make disciples? Believe the gospel more. You want to know how to spread the gospel? Believe the gospel more. Because when you believe the gospel more, you'll love people more. And when you believe the gospel more, you'll be free to reach those people more. The other thing this does, I mean, make sure you see when the Gentiles get this message, you know, they send the letter to them. The gospel of Jesus, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The gospel of Jesus encourages people. Back up here. How did Peter say it up here? Placing a yoke on the neck, this false gospel burdens people. You want to put weight on people? The weight of pressure and the weight of guilt and the weight of performance. Give them a Jesus and religious message. And wear them out and break them down. And make them either want to quit or make them get so ground down and worn out that they're miserable the whole time they're doing the stuff you're telling them they're supposed to be doing. You want to set people free? You want to see people's eyes light up with love? You want to see people make disciples? Give them the gospel of Jesus, the true gospel of Jesus, that God has done this for you, and God will do this in you, and you can trust him, and you don't have anything to worry about. That encourages people. That sets people free to be who God calls them to be. And then the last thing to see here, and I'm going to write down verse 23, but we don't have to... The identity, in the, in, when you're talking about the actual gospel of Jesus, your identity is in Jesus. What he has done, what he gives to you, he's why you're right with God. He's why you're going to live the way you are, and he's your message. Your identity's in Jesus. Over here in this false gospel, your identity is in what you do to distinguish yourself. Here's what I've done to advance myself, to make myself better, to mark myself out as being set apart for God. That's what defines me. I'm different than these Gentiles. They've got to become like me to be accepted by me. And it's like, no, they have to know Jesus and trust Jesus, and Jesus needs to live in them and make them like him to be accepted by him. It doesn't matter if you accept them. It matters if Jesus accepts them, and he does. And so in the true gospel, your identity is in Jesus. In Jesus and your identity is what you do to distinguish yourself. In the true gospel, you are going to tell people, you tell people what Jesus has done. See this last one right here. 
You tell people what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. And this Jesus and stuff, this man-made religious stuff, you tell people what they need to do. Yeah, you've got to be circumcised if God is going to save you. You've got to obey the law of Moses. You've got to worship this way. Your church has to look like this. You have to do this. You have to be involved in these programs. You have to serve this way. All that stuff will make you more acceptable to God. God will love you more. God will be more pleased with you if you do all this stuff. Here's me standing up here telling you what to do. And here we all go telling everybody what we think everybody should be doing and setting up our standards and putting burdens on each other and saying, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And the gospel says, this is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus has already done. Live in it. Be free in it. Love out of it. Be his people. And so super, super fast, when there's conflict in the church, I just want you to notice this. How did they handle it? They addressed it honestly. They didn't sweep it under the rug. They didn't minimize it. They didn't pretend, oh yeah, we're all getting along and everything's great. There was sharp dissension and debate over the gospel. Like if we don't agree about this, we need to talk about this. And we all, we need to have the type of relationships and the type of environment where we can be honest and we can talk through stuff. Right? What we hope happened here is that all these people who were struggling to believe the real gospel, they heard it from Paul and they heard it from Barnabas and they heard it from Peter and they heard it from James and they're like, oh, that's the true gospel and they started believing the true gospel. But if we ignore that or minimize that or sidestep that or we're not willing to have these hard conversations, then we leave people believing something that's not the truth. We leave people farther from Jesus. And so we have to address it honestly. Talk through it openly. Right? They actually talk to each other and they get together and they're like, okay, when Paul and Barnabas were talking to them, that wasn't enough, so let's bring in James and Peter and everybody. Like, this is a big enough deal that if everybody needs to be here to talk about it, so be it. Let's talk about it. And then, most of all, let the gospel inform it. Whatever conflict you have in the church, you keep asking, what's the true gospel? What does it look like if the true gospel speaks to this issue? Let the true gospel define whatever we're disagreeing about. We'll agree on the gospel, and somehow that'll bring us together. I already talked about this, but all those categories, the lines, on this right side, this everything you've got to do, you know, we're talking about, in a sense, us individually with God. But I hope you realize that anything the Bible says to each of us individually, it says to the whole church because the church is the people, right? Like the church isn't some, organ, like some abstract organization separate from the people. And the church isn't a building or a location. We are the church. And so the things that God says to us individually about our faith in Jesus, God is saying to the church as a whole. And I think that one of the things that happens in this whole performance culture and this, I've got to make myself look good and I've got to earn God's approval and God will be more pleased with me if I do this stuff. Like we, we build an entire church culture that's based on that. And we pressure ourselves to perform and impress and get human results. And so we'll schedule and we'll program and we'll push and we'll press and we'll busy everybody to death because then we get, look at what all we're doing. Look at what all we're doing. Look at all the good things. And we feel good. 
If we can see all the stuff we're doing, and everybody, well, this is happening, this is happening, this, this, look at these results, and it makes us feel good. The reason that makes you feel good is because you aren't trusting Jesus enough. God already loves you. He already approves of you. He already accepts you. You don't have to do anything to change that or increase that. Now, if you want to do this stuff, do it because he already loves you. Do it because his love has set you free and you want to love other people and you think, this will be a great way to reach other people. This will be a great way to live out the gospel. This will be a great way to serve people and show them the gospel. That's great. Do it for those reasons, but do it out of freedom and not out of burden. And then what it also does is it frees us to strip away all the stuff that we were only doing out of guilt and pressure and just to look good and we say, you know what, we're not going to waste time and energy on that. This is what God's called us to do. This is who he's called us to be. Let's go love people. Let's make disciples. Let's believe that the Spirit and the Word are enough, that Jesus is enough. And whatever we do, let's do that over and over and over all the time. Just Jesus, just his Word, just his Spirit, just his Gospel. Whatever we're doing, let it be that. Everything in me that is any good at all that comes from God wants us to be that type of church. Now, there's all sorts of stuff in me that's not good and still wants to perform and be impressive, but forget that, ignore that. Anytime I speak out of that, just write me off. This is not who we want to be. Let God set us free to be who he's called us to be, and there is no pressure for you to perform. What if we really looked like a church that said we believe the gospel, we believe Jesus has done it all, we believe Jesus gives it all, and we're going to offer that to everyone. And we're not going to be so caught up wasting all of our time and all of our energy and all of our resources trying to make ourselves look better that we don't actually have time to love people and share the gospel. We'll die to all this so that all we do, all we do is love each other and love people and make disciples by the power of his spirit, not by us. So the very last thing I had written down, and we're, we're getting there. You think about this and everything we've seen in the past few chapters. It's Pharisees, the people who were keeping the rules the best, the religious people. And before it's been the Jews who are opposing Paul and Barth. It's always religious people who get worked up and hate the gospel in Acts. Have you seen that? And so I want to offer you this application for your heart today. The good stuff you have done may be your biggest barrier to believe in the gospel. Like we always think the bad stuff I've done, that's the stuff that's going to keep me away from God. Jesus dealt with that. It's gone. He forgave it. He took it away. It's dead with him. It's not keeping you away from God. But the good stuff that you're holding on to, the stuff you're trusting instead of Jesus, or the stuff you're trusting in addition to Jesus, the stuff that's keeping you from letting go and trusting Jesus alone, that's your biggest barrier to believing the gospel and trusting Jesus. The stuff in you that you think is good enough, not the stuff that you think is too bad. And so I was thinking, why is that? Like, why is it our good stuff? And I thought this last thing right here, and this is kind of our closing invitation moment, that the gospel has two main effects on us. One is that it humbles us. And what I mean is, the gospel says, you are so bad. You are so bad that the Son of God had to die for you. This is not some little half measure. This is not a minor surgery. It's not you just were a little bit bad. You were so awful that the Son of God had to die for you. Face the black darkness and death of your own sin and realize this is the truth about it and be humbled by what's in your heart. But then... The gospel comes to those humbled people 
And the gospel encourages us. Because the gospel says, and when you were that bad, God loved you that much. God loves you so much that Jesus did die for you. And now God accepts you completely in Jesus. Completely. Be encouraged by the fact that nothing you have done keeps you away from God if you come to him in Jesus. He's ready. He's willing. He's inviting you. He wants to accept you in Jesus. It's for everyone. And be encouraged by the way that God loves you and approves of you and accepts you in Jesus. So the gospel humbles us and the gospel encourages us. And I was thinking about like the really bad people. <laughs> The people that we know, yeah, they've done all the wrong stuff. It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners in the New Testament. And you know what they look like in our world today. Like the really bad people, they believe, number one, I'm as bad as it says I am. I mean, just, I mean we all minimize that. But, but yeah, I know I'm really bad. And they're desperate. They're starving for number two. Somebody love me. Somebody accept me. Somebody approve of me. Because I know how far I've fallen short. And so in a sense, their badness prepares them to believe the gospel. But really good people, religious people, these Pharisees, these Jews, you and me sitting in church every week, the danger is that we're really proud of how good we are and all the good things we've done. So we reject number one, and we don't feel like we need number two because if we secretly think God already accepts me, he already approves of me. Look at the good stuff I'm doing. I'm better than them. He must love me more than them. And so it's our goodness that gets in the way of us believing the gospel because what it is, is it's our self-righteousness. And so God comes to us in the gospel and he says, I've got to destroy your self-righteousness. I've got to kill that and humble you. And then if you fall off into the pit of self-pity then, oh, I'm really that bad? Then he comes in the pit of self-pity and he picks you up and he encourages you and he says, I love you. He kills your self-righteousness by humbling you. And then he kills your self-pity by encouraging you. And the gospel speaks to every part of self that would oppose it. But you've got to get past thinking that there's something that you can do. And you've got to know it's Jesus alone. And so I just wrote it down these last few ways right here. That the gospel brings you down. Like it shatters your illusions of self-righteousness and goodness and pride. And then the gospel lifts you back up in Jesus. Humbles you and encourages you, that the gospel breaks you, but then the gospel puts you back together, that the gospel kills you, and then the gospel brings you back to life. And I want you to see that's exactly what Jesus already did for you. He came and he died for you. And then he was raised back to life you. When we sang, Lord, I need you, right before I got up here, my one defense, one defense, Jesus, period, Jesus alone, my one defense, my righteousness, all of it in him. He's done it all for you. And so first today, hear this message from God to you, his gospel for you. He loves you. He wants you. He wants to make you his for his name's sake. He will accept you and approve of you and receive you in Jesus. Will you believe in Jesus? And then secondly, he wants to set you free to love everyone that way, with that gospel. Will we be that type of church? 
where we open our eyes and say, God, show me. Show me where you want me to speak this gospel. Show me people who are far from God, out in the world, look so lost. Show me where to speak this gospel because they may be the people who are most desperate and ready to hear it. The people I would write off the most. They're the ones that are broken the most and need it the most. Use me. And then the religious people that sound right and look right and are saying all this good stuff, help me confront them with the gospel. And help me know the gospel's worth fighting for. And help me never sacrifice the gospel and never compromise on the gospel. Because they need it too. Oh, I pray this grips your heart. I pray Jesus grips your heart and my heart. And he makes us this type of church. He does it. Will you pray like you believe he's going to do it? I'm going to pray right now and we're going to worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you, Father, when there was nothing that we ever could have done to work for it or earn it, you gave it by grace alone. And then you didn't say, all right, here it is. Now come get it by your works. You said, just, just believe, faith alone. And you said, and your faith can be in me alone, in Jesus alone. Father, thank you that it's all you Forgive us, Father, for all the things that we had. Forgive us for pretending like it could ever be us in any way. Rescue us from that. And build your church on your gospel, on the message of your son. Build your church on Jesus, the rock, and Jesus alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.